The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of April 15th, 2019. On this week's show, Jim Newell will join us to talk about Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods winning the Masters. Tiger Woods! The New Yorker's Vincent Cunningham will also be here to discuss Kyle Korver's piece for the Players' Tribune about the NBA and white privilege. And ESPN's Jeff Passan will come on to talk about what's been ballyhooed as the worst baseball contract of all time, the seven-year extension that Ozzie Albies just signed with the Atlanta Braves. Here with me in our Washington, D.C. studio is my co-host, Stefan. That's my name. Kevin Fatsis, Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. I'll get it right one of these weeks. It's all right. You're Stephane, not the first. Yeah. Stephen, good to be here with you. How are you? Stephanos. Go full on. Is Fatsis short for something? No. I don't think so. Maybe 100 years ago. No, not 100 years ago. It'd have to be like 200 years ago. I don't know. Levitansky was mine. Really? Yeah. Huh. Is That's Josh, why it's pronounced Levine. Is Josh short for something? Joshua. Joshua B. Levine. It is. Okay. Let's talk about you. Yeah. What's up? Your book. Got to pre-order The Queen. Everybody has to pre-order The Queen. Do you think it's too much pressure to tell people they have to pre-order The Queen? I'm going to afterball The Queen. And so Today? Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to entice people with actual content rather than shame, guilt and shame. Guilt and shame is pretty good. Though. Guilt, shame, and content. I'm triangulating. Uh, let's begin the show, shall we? I'm on like page 200 something. There's no sports content in the Queen yet. You'll find you'll find out in this afterball. Okay, you'll you'll hear it. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time: the roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Many doubted we'd ever see it, but here it is. The return to glory. Jim Nance at the Masters on CBS, sounding very breathy as at Augusta National Golf Club, the 43-year-old Tiger Woods won his fifth Masters, his 15th Grand Slam overall, his first major title since 2008, coming back from two shots back to beat a bunch of guys who are a lot less famous than he is. It was the first time ever in his long and storied career he's come back uh, when trailing after 54 holes to win a major. Joining us now one day after the happiest day of his young life is our colleague, Jim Newell. Hello, Jim. Hi, guys. Where's the lie, Jim? What do you mean, where's the lie? Where's the lie in the It is the happiest day of your life. No, no, there's no lie there. I mean, I just want to thank all the people who, who reached out to congratulate me yesterday <laughs> after this win. You, you know. deserved it. It was, it was, I mean, it was a roller. Co- I didn't breathe for four hours, but then I breathed many times and I was, I was just a hot mess. It's the biggest day of my career. It, you, it's the biggest day. I, I, it's the biggest moment ever. So we're going <laughs> to celebrate it here. It is the biggest moment ever. It's the biggest moment ever in sports, golf, human accomplishment. Uh, I mean, maybe a place to start is, you know, 
growing up, I was a little bit too young for Jack Nicholas in 86, but that had the feeling, I think, like this did of there are, you know, moments as a sports fan where you know you're watching something historic happening, and this will never be topped, I don't think. The Tiger comeback and everything that went into it, um, this is going to be the greatest moment in the history of golf, like no, no fooling. Yeah, I felt yesterday when, you know, I had the right afterwards, our, our recap on Slate, and I, I was not up to the moment. Like, it's very it's very hard to sort of put this all into perspective about what it means. And, you know, I could have really gone super over the top, came very close, averted it, you know. But I don't know, maybe I should have just gone super over the top because this is really, I, this is absolutely wild. I mean, I, I think it's, you know, it's more... And I don't know, maybe this is just a generational thing, but it's wilder than Jack winning in 86. You know, he didn't have these this sort of injuries or the sort of lows that Tiger had to come back from. I mean, he couldn't really see. He was, like, really losing his eyesight at the 86 mat. He couldn't see any of his shots, which is pretty amazing. But, I mean, this is, yeah. I mean, it's it's going to take a little while to set in. But it's really everything, Jim. I mean, you said the lows, but the lows were not just four back surgeries and an ACL and other debilitating ailments. The lows were the self-afflicted personal drama of his of his, you know, winding up crashing his car into a fire hydrant on Thanksgiving night 10 years ago and the reported you know, long time series of affairs and infidelities and the breakup with his wife and 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 painkiller addiction. I mean, there's a lot of shit going on with Tiger Woods. I mean, he checked into rehab for a little bit of time. A couple times. A couple yeah, times. For different problems. Right. Um, so the scope of the recovery and whether you want to be morally judgmental or not, the way Augusta was 10 years ago when the chairman at the time, Billy Payne, basically called Tiger out for his moral failings, um, that's up to you. As a sporting achievement, holy shit. Yeah, <laughs> very much so. Um, and you could see, especially with Jim Nance in Butler Cabin afterwards, where it seemed to me like he was about to cry in trying to make Tiger cry. He was making himself cry. And we've always wanted more from Tiger, the person. And he's given us more since this comeback than he had before. And he did talk about his kids. and But I felt like with Rinald, Tom Rinaldi and with Nance, they were really trying to pull stuff out of him with comparing this to when he hugged his dad in, in 97. And Tiger was still just a little bit withholding. Like he didn't even come close, I thought, to breaking down. But it was really telling to me that we just, we were all kind of feeling that as much or more than he was and just like desperate to get him to acknowledge how much this meant to him. Yeah, I, I had wondered, you know, what he would do when he tapped it in. I didn't know if he would just fall on the ground crying or something, but he sort of just went into full party mode. Like, he was yeah. just screaming for several straight yeah, I thought minutes. it was going to be a fall to your knees and, and yeah. bury your head in your hands kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, but he just went crazy. But yeah, yeah, it was funny, you know, some of the questions afterwards, people were asking, does this rank as your biggest moment? He, he, he wouldn't like, even go he was there. Like, yeah, I guess it's up there, you know? <laughs> I like the guy that asked him um, if he thought he would be able to come back from his injuries and other problems. Seriously. Yeah. And Tiger said, well, I think I just did. Yeah, right. <laughs> when are you going to be at your peak? Yeah. yeah. Um, so let's talk about the round. He was, you know, on the front nine kind of plodding along. It was not looking like his day. He was down um, three shots like early on the back nine, right? And then Molinari hits the ball in the water on 12. 
um, and Tony Fino at the ball in the water and 12, and Ian Poulter at the ball in the water and 12, and Brooks Kepke at the ball in the water and 12, and Tiger, by the act of just like hitting the ball 40 feet away from the pin, was heroic in that moment. So, you know, as you're watching this, you're obviously happy that the other golfers are, are doing poorly and, and screwing up. Yeah. Um, how much do <laughs> just a little bit? <laughs> how much do we like project onto them sort of anxiety about the fact that they're trying to beat Tiger? How much of it is just like strictly they misjudged the wind? Like how much credit should we assign to Tiger, I guess, for the fact that all these other guys just started fucking up on the back nine? I don't know. I, I really did not think that either Kepka or Molinari would get rattled all day. And I you know, I don't know if Kepka necessarily did. I mean, he put it in the water, but you he know, got an eagle immediately after. Yeah, that. he got an eagle. Like he was there. You know, I didn't allow myself to really believe that Tiger could pull it off until Brooks misses birdie putt on eighteen. So, I mean, but Molinari, I you know, I really did not think they would get to him, and I I think just, I mean that, you know, I could feel the pressure. I mean, I should have because you know. Me and my partner Tiger Woods were winning, you know, very close to winning the Masters. But I, you know, I think this was. But it just, wasn't even close when Molinari hit it in the water. I mean, it was like. Yeah, I mean, which time too? You know, <laughs> on fifteen right, as did well. On fifteen too, yeah. Yeah, and I, th- I think it, it may have actually gotten to Molinari. Like, just the, it's, I mean, the biggest possible pressure cooker you could be in. The Masters back nine with Tiger Woods, you know, tied. Why is that hole so difficult, Jim? In the New York Times, Bill Pennington, in a terrific analysis of the of the of the event afterward said that Tiger's experience on 12 helped him. I mean, hit the ball farther and hit it to the left is not that complicated a strategy for this hole, and it's a strategy that has been in existence as long as this hole has existed. Why do these guys who can hit a golf ball to, you know, within five feet of the intended target most of the time, hit the ball into the water on this hole? I mean, it it really is amazing how you can just see that mistake repeated year after year after year. I I mean— I, part of it, the reason it's difficult is just because you're in that low hollow and you can't really feel the wind on the tee or the wind is doing something differently on the tee than it is doing on the green or up in the air. And it's sort of because it's a bowl down there it can swirl around. But it's just amazing that people every year, you know, they know that, but they think, oh, the pin's right there. I should just go for it. Don't over club. Right. Yeah. And they, you just get, you know, that sort of aggressive feeling and, and you make that same mistake. I mean, sometimes it works out. Like Phil went right at it in 04 when he won his first Masters. But yeah, I mean, it, it was just, um, you know, it, it's there's some supernatural thing where, you know, mo- everyone can't just get themselves to hit it, you know, middle of the bunker a little long like Tiger did, like you're supposed to do. You know, I mean, that's that's the play. And you would think that everyone would just do that, especially if you're tied for the lead. But every year, you know, someone tries it. It did seem like starting with 12 and through the rest of the holes, the Tiger was totally in command of his instrument. Um, he did not make any mistakes after that, except if if you count when he was just playing it extraordinarily safe on 18. But, you know, the shots into 13 where he birdied, you know, got it really close on 14, did miss a close putt, you know, again, playing 15 perfectly and and getting a birdie there. And then the shot on 16, which I think will be the one that comes to stand for the, the entire comeback and, and everything he um, that he did on Sunday. Foot yeah. On the, on the par three. And I felt like there was a, the psychological shift on 12 was palpable. Tiger, these guys are both 
Tony Finau, the third player in the group, and Molinari have hit the ball into Ray's Creek. They're down there, you know, pulling clubs out of their bag and balls out of their out of their pockets. And Tiger is standing on the green watching them. Staring imperiously. Yeah. Well, and he was. I mean, didn't Finau go third? I think it was Molinari hits in the water, Tiger puts on the green, and then Finau puts it in the water. Like, I, I don't know. It's mystical what happens on that hole almost. But – I mean, if you look at winning the Masters, it's it's sort of a it's sort of a clear playbook. You know, you you get through. You know, if you're tied or near the lead, you know, after Amen Corner, you get your par on twelve, middle of the green, and then you have to birdie thirteen, fifteen, and sixteen, and then just hold on through there. So, I mean, it was just pretty classic execution. It was but, textbook. Yeah, but you could also tell. I mean, and maybe we're projecting here, but Woods looked like I am not going to fucking lose this. I mean, he had that. That that memorable tiger demeanor. I mean, there was nothing. It was actually. That I was thought it was a little to... different. You know, like he he wasn't really strutting a lot. No, the way no, he no, used no, to, no. It was, but he was just he was walking very slowly, like keeping his heart rate down, and you know the chewing of the gum and expressionless. And there was certainly no joking around with his playing right. partners. Yeah, I think it's been long enough, and we've seen enough problems with him off the tee in this comeback that. It was just still hard to believe that he was going to, you know, hit every fairway coming in just like in this metronomic way. It felt like even as he won the tour championship last year, even as he finished um, second at the PGA, that's kind of the thing that felt like it was missing is in the like back nines of these tournaments, like nailing every single shot and hitting the ball exactly where he wanted to hit it. Well, I think one thing, you know, I could tell he started around um, 14 was, you know, his drive was not perfect for a lot of the day because he was trying to hit a lot of draws or he was, you know, leaving some hanging or overhooking them, especially in the front nine. And then he seemed to go on 14 to this, uh, this pretty strong fade, you know, almost a little baby slice where... You know, it's not going to go nearly as far, but you have control over it. So I, I think that's also another impressive part of his game where if he knows he doesn't have his, you know, 340-yard bomb, he can just sort of go to that safety shot. How much also, Jim, did he luck out all week? Because it seemed like— A lot. <laughs> he, he hit the ball into the trees a bunch of times, and then it, you're, like, kind of waiting um, as they go through the commercial or as they— cycle through, you know, some lame like hitting an iron shot or whatever that you don't want to see. Then they come back and it's like Tiger in the middle of like <laughs> this like clearing where it just seems like there's a space between trees and he just like kind of yeah. fires it up onto the green. I mean, he found the secret fairway at 11 <laughs> twice. I mean, that little alley sort of between the trees, I don't know why it exists. I think it exists for Tiger probably, but he found <laughs> that. And then, I mean, in 14, the first two days, he was dead in the middle of the woods and he made birdie both times. I mean, the second time, too, there was a crazy cop coming after him, and he had to, you know, lunge away so he didn't break his ankle. Uh, Talk about luck. It wasn't was a, a cop. Yeah, it was just like some one of those guys in the— It was a, a, a rent-a-cop. <laughs> yeah, volunteer, yeah. Stefan, one thing that was striking um, in the clip that we played at the top of the show, we cut it off. Um, you know, maybe we should have let the whole two minutes of applause play. That would have been more appropriate, but Jim Nance did not— talk. He stepped out, let the moment uh, breathe. And I think we saw for the entire weekend that all of the like thick layer of bullshit that's slathered all over the Masters is not necessary when you have 
a storyline this compelling. I mean, this is, as we said, the the number one storyline, but it just kind of showed to me how (laughs) ridiculous and unnecessary all that stuff is if you have actual great sports drama going on. It just feels superfluous. it, it, It feels phony. I mean, every time they use the word patrons, it feels phony. Every time Nance is pouring the syrup on the pancakes of the tournament, it feels phony. Um, And CBS does terrific camera work, right? I mean, there was a shot on 18 um, where they went long into the crowd and then Tiger stood up into the frame. I mean, there was some beautiful shot making by CBS that really made the, you know, Tiger's run down the back nine feel so present and so compelling and drew me in as a viewer that, no, you don't need all of this and you don't need Butler Cabin. I mean, all of this whole patina of tradition and um, excess and, you know, of rich excess is patently unnecessary. Jim likes that stuff. But do you like that stuff, Jim? Really? Eh. (laughs) You do? No, I mean, I don't like it. I mean, you can tell when they have to compensate for a weak tournament like when Patrick Reed has, you know, a, a an unreachable lead, you know, in the final round and you really have to sort of play it up and talk about the pageantry and, you know, Patrick Reed's love for Imagine Dragons or whatever they talked about last time. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I it's my favorite sporting event in the world, so I can't help but allow a little bit of that to get to me. Well, but that's yeah, when what they makes talk it. about when they I talk mean, about sure. so much of the history and, you know, uh, like at the beginning of yesterday's, I was about to break my TV because, you know, Tiger was in the middle of his round and they do the like butler cabin with Nick Faldo. And he's like making Nick Faldo cry about the 30th anniversary of his first <laughs> Masters win. And he's like consoling Faldo. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? You know, <laughs> get back to the golf. Uh, there is something about the fact that this is the one major that's played on the same course every year. Like when you talk about experience and 12. I mean, like we all have experience with with the 12th hole and the Masters on Sunday. So what are these uh, idiots uh, excuse? But you can't help, even if you have it on mute, you can't help but um, feel like there is a kind of history and a tradition there because we've all seen it and felt it. And I think, Jim, you know, as somebody who was rooting for this day to happen, you wanted it to be the Masters that where he came back and won. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I think it being anchored in the same place definitely gives it credibility as sort of the the greatest one. And also, I mean— If his first know, major I, I back was the PGA, that would have counted like, you know, yeah, 60%. That would have been—I would have not accepted that or rejected it. But I think the Masters, too, you know, talking about how they overdo it on, on the syrup and the pageantry. I mean, the golf course really does speak for itself. I mean, it's, the design is absolutely incredible there, you know, just the— the, the slopes and the no rough and just some of the, you know, the, the way they make you hit, like, fades off of hook lies into, like, long par fives. I mean, it really is just an incredible piece. So, I mean, if, if you know, they were playing one major every year at, like, the local Muni or something, it would probably not have the same power. Right, which a lot of which is lost on casual viewers. I mean, a lot of that is lost on me that you have to, you know, it's designed to play fades into par fives. Um so it's that balance, right? I mean, a little less of of Jim Nance would, in my eyes, enhance the. I mean, you want that continuity, and you love, and the bullshit does make us talk about it, and it does make it fun to watch. 
Um, I noticed the wind was blowing inside Butler Cabin a little bit. The ferns were moving in the background. Yeah, so, yeah classic ti- master's tradition. Tigers had, Tiger had to compensate for that too. <laughs> and I love like having the, the low amateur sitting next to, in this case, Tiger being interviewed as if he matters. I mean, yeah. it's adorable um, and absurd at the same time. So, Jem, you wrote um, a review of the Jeff Benedict and Armin Katayan book about Tiger, which is a book-length account of what a dick Tiger Woods is. And your conclusion there was that, um, you know, Tiger's talent is all that matters, and that's the reason that we should root for him. I think it's going to be— Is that a, what I said? I think, it's, <laughs> I think it's going to be a serious, serious challenge for all of us to remember that. In the wake of this uh, of this victory, Wait, um, which part that he was that he's mostly a dick, that he's mostly a dick, and that we shouldn't like put all of this other stuff on him about how he's grown as a person, and that that somehow make is what makes this this great is that he's like better and somehow uh, appreciates. And his kids are now like twelve and ten, right? So, uh, I guess if you could look deep or maybe just like shallowly inside yourself is that was that a challenge for you on Sunday or was it just a strict talent appreciation for you yeah it wasn't a challenge for me it's never been a challenge I mean you know there are a lot of people I saw some you know people on Twitter yesterday reacting like I you know I still don't understand how anyone could root for this guy as a terrible person and if that's the way you feel you know that's that's fine but, you know, just as someone who is uh, a golf obsessive, I guess, I mean, just watching the best player, you know, at the best arena, hitting, you know, executing his shots, hitting them to like where, within three feet of where he's aiming, like shot after shot. I mean, to me, that just outweighs everything else. <laughs> and he's so compelling to watch. And that doesn't mean that he is, you know, they try to. We talked a lot about, like, in that piece and some other things I've written about how, you know, the better he plays, the the more uh, the, the golf media complex sort of tries to play it up as, well, he's also a more moral person now, you know? And I, I think he probably is less of a dick now than he used to be. But, you know, I just, you know, I just love the just the, the excellence of the way he's playing when he's playing his best because it's not, you know, something we'll ever see again. You can't be as good as Tiger Woods and not be a dick. Yeah, I that's mean, true too. That is absolutely part of every great athlete's DNA. Um, and even, you know, Jack Nicholas, everyone talked to Jack Nicholas after the, the, the end of the, uh, end of the Jack Masters. Jack has yesterday. 18, Tiger now up to 15. And they got Jack on the phone. Jack was uh, not there, he was bone fishing in the Bahamas. <laughs> which, what it's else would you move. be doing? Yeah. And. You know, he sent some text to people. He put out a statement. And then the Golf Channel actually got him on the phone from his bone fishing trip. Um, and it was not exactly a full-throated endorsement of Tiger as a person. But he praised his shot making. He basically went shot by shot on Tiger's back nine. Um, his placement on the greens, where he hit it and how. It was really a great interview. Um, you know, he praised his iron control, his short game. Um, he's got me shaking in my boots, guys, Nicholas said. And that's really what this is, is that how good a golfer is Tiger Woods? Is he as good as Jack Nicholas? And the rest, make your own damn judgments. It does seem like Tiger's peers are happy for him, though. Like, that seems genuine, how they greeted him after the round and, you know, whatever. It's stuff on social media is performative. But these guys know which side their bread is buttered on. It's obviously great 
for the sport um, to have him back. But it it does seem like, um, at least um, in that kind of fraternity, that they like Tiger or are at least happy for him. Yeah, I don't think that's something that would have happened, you know— I, I haven't reviewed all the camera shots from the early 2000s if anyone was out there greeting him before, but I don't think that would have been the case because I don't, I you know, I he didn't really make an effort to make friends with the rest of the PGA Tour. He came just to beat them and, you know, he was very guarded and kept everyone else away. That's why it was so interesting when he came back last year and he was like, you know, it's just it's just great to be out with the guys again. It's like, when have you ever wanted to be out with the guys before? You know, Brooksy. Brook, oh yeah, Brooksy and yeah, Brooksy, the guys. all the the E's, yeah. yeah. Um, so I yeah, I think they really do like him, and I think he is pretty open with him, and, and you know doesn't you know condescend. But he was definitely all business on the golf course this week. There was like, I don't think he looked at any of his playing partners the entire week, which was also fun to see. Uh, if you see Jim out in the world, congratulate him. This was um, a big win for him. We're so happy for you uh, and hope there's there's more to come. Thanks, guys. I mean, this is this is up there for me. It's got to be up there, right? It has to be. Has to yeah. Be. Bye. Bye. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Before we get to our conversation with Vincent Cunningham about Kyle Korver and whiteness in the NBA, I wanted to let you know that on our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about One of the bigger refereeing controversies in all of sports in recent memory, it happened in hockey, it happened in the World Championships, it happened between the USA and Finland for the women's world title, and our producer slash hockey refereeing expert Patrick Fort will be here to walk us through it. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. On Sunday night, Kyle Korver scored zero points and committed four fouls in 10 minutes in Utah's 122-90 Game 1 loss to the Houston Rockets in the first round of the Western Conference playoffs. But congratulations, Kyle Korver, because we're talking about you anyway. Last Monday, he published a piece in the Players' Tribune with the headline, Privileged. That piece is a first-person account of how Korver, one of the most prominent white players in the NBA, developed a racial consciousness. Joining us to discuss it is Vincent Cunningham, who, since last we spoke, has become the theater critic for The New Yorker. Congrats. Thank you. Uh, Good to have you. So, as Corver notes in this Players' Tribune piece, and I use, uh, I 
was searching my mental thesaurus for a word that isn't rights because there's always a question with the Players Tribune about what what the authorship is of these pieces. But this is clearly Corver's thoughts and and beliefs here. Mm-hmm. This is a first person account of um, what kind of inspired him to see himself as a white player in the NBA. And he talks about when he was on the Hawks, Tabo Cephalusha infamously got um, beaten down by the police at a club in New York. He also talks about how now that he's a member of the Utah Jazz, there was an incident recently where uh, Russell Westbrook got racially abused by a fan. And, you know, Corver has been playing in the league for a very long time. He's in his mid-30s. And it's fascinating to hear how, in by his own account, it's just kind of dawning on him now what the experience of his black teammates is and how that's informed his view pretty much on race in America. Yes. And so in that way, it does come across strangely as this kind of um, this sort of conversion narrative, right? Like it starts off, he's like sort of in this sort of self-incriminatory mode of, you know, I can't believe that all I thought about when my friend Tabo Cephalosha, who I talked about, you know, I talked with him about politics. He was one of my favorite teammates. But all I could think about when he's, his leg was broken by the police was um, why was he out? Um, why was he out, you know, on the night of a back-to-back or whatever? Which is like, first of all, that's the strangest thing I've ever heard. Like, that has nothing to do with race. Like, your teammate is, like, grievously harmed. Wow. <laughs> it is, it's, I mean, I guess it, it's a, it works as an anecdote for this piece, but, um, uh, I mean, in what moral universe is that your thought, regardless of race? But, okay, fine. Um, and so, but the, he comes to this sort of epiphany, um, as you say, via, via Russell Westbrook, of all people, um, and this... Uh, this uh, interaction that he had with uh, with a fan that went incredibly viral. Um, that's all interesting. And um, I would imagine, to me, I, I guess I, I imagined that the experience of white NBA players was a little bit more colored by these things than I guess it is if you talk to Corver. I don't understand how you could have a favorite teammate who you talk with about politics all the time and not have heard some of these things um, that he talks about. So that was, that was just, that was interesting to me. And I, I, I wondered, um, and actually the end of his piece is the, the part that I found the most interesting because he's talking about, um, you know, being a white player. There's this paragraph. He says, being a white player is really interesting. It's a, it's kind of a strange position. He says, it's a position that comes with a lot of, and he has this long ellipsis, interesting undertones. Um, and later on he says, you know, I want you to know that I believe these things. So if you like are wearing my jersey or you're rooting for me in some sort of, and he hints that people, you know, root for him for symbolic reasons, extra basketball reasons that he's like, you know, he doesn't say this, but there, there's this feeling of this sort of like great white hope, revanchist um, rooting for white players, which like, I wish his whole essay was about that. Right, because you know it exists. I mean, clearly, this is part of our culture, um, whether right. it's, you know, in the NBA, whether it's, you know, Jimmer Fredette or any white <laughs> player that is held up as some embodiment Boxing. of. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, so, but, you know, it, it just struck me as so kind of strange that. As you point out, Vincent, that you've been in the league for as long as you've been in the league, and you've been playing basketball as long as you've been playing basketball. Right. Um, 
but that your thought process is that, wow, it's weird for me to be doing this and not, wow, you know, how does it not dawn on you at some point that it's weird for these African-American guys to exist day to day as African-American people? This isn't like, you know, uh, some the great epiphany, as you say, that, oh, what's it like to be a minority? He's been part of this culture for his entire life. He's been playing basketball. The NBA is 75% black. Well, if you look at the response from his fellow NBA players, there doesn't seem to be any um, critique of the fact that it took him this long to get there. It's Whether it's from LeBron James or anybody else, there's just a huge amount of gratitude behind the fact that he put his name and his skin behind the ideas in this piece. And it's not just like, oh, hey, I realize that it's like hard to be black in America. Like he was talking about, uh, you know, some fairly like Kyle War- Corver is like extremely woke now. It, w- it feels like it went from like from like zero to 60. And that I think maybe Vincent is the part that if you're taking his, um, you know, account here at face value, that's the part that maybe just seems a little bit hard to parse because the way that he's talking about race now and like uh, it, it just feels very kind of advanced and state of the art for like progressive white people in America. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's really interesting because what that sort of wokeness inheres in is essentially analysis, right? And that's what's always weird about these kinds of statements. It's like he recites a history that is totally true, but he says, you know, it's about responsibility. Um, it's about understanding that when we say inequality, what we really mean is slavery and its aftermath. You know, um, we should understand that Black Lives Matter and the, the, these movements are good. So he says all of these things. I mean, he, then he has this weird moment where he's like, um, but that means action. And then he doesn't say any actions. Um, and not that I want him to, this is the the, the sort of, the tension that I always feel, I don't need Kyle Corver to be whatever the white basketball version of Jesse Jackson is or whatever. Like, I don't need him to, to be the call to action, but it's like, he just kind of lays out his understanding and that kind of is where it goes. Um, but for me, as someone who like is interested in, like I am interested in his experience and I'm also interested in the experience of uh, someone like Andrew Bogus, who seems to be completely red-pilled, right? Like, how is it to be like Jordan Peterson, essentially, in the, the Warriors locker room, um, where Steve Kerr is like another one of these woke NBA white guys? Um, I would love to hear just a, all about that, that experience. Like, expand that paragraph about fans who root for you for weird reasons and talk about that. Um, because, I, you know, as much as this is good, and I'm sure it makes many of his teammates feel good, um, it doesn't really speak to his experience and what he feels like he can do from his position. And I think it's the the other the other thing that really isn't discussed by Corver is not just the racial makeup of the players, but the racial makeup of the fan base in the NBA and in every professional sports league. Um, white fans and black fans view leagues and policies very, very differently. The uh, undefeated did a, a, a poll of, of, of black fans last year, um, and it really revealed this racial divide. And I don't know whether white players just sort of, because that is their life, that 
it takes something like Russell Westbrook getting yelled at by a fan, being called, um, you know, or I mean, DeMarcus Cousins said that he's been called the N word multiple times in the NBA, and he last he just said this a couple weeks ago and said that the the league has not always taken action um, where he felt that they should have. But I wonder whether the sort of wokeness or awakening on the part of a player like Kyle Korver, you know, it really is kind of a weird psychology. Like you do this for as many years as you do it and you work in an environment like the NBA and you're the one or two white guys on the team. Is it possible that he just really hadn't devoted much thought to this because of what he does, you know, what his job is and where he shows up every day? How willful can your your sort of lack of introspection be? Uh, it's it's a good question, and on some level, this job takes a lot of odd focus, and in some ways, self interest. Right? You have to be just kind of. Um, it, 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 I guess it seems to me that it would take a, a very special NBA player to be like you know reading up on this kind of thing and um, managing this kind of awareness of one's teammates when you're also in like a totally zero sum competition with your teammates. And there's only, you know, whatever it is, 450 people at a time who can have this job. Um, and so, but they, but they certainly have to have a race awareness. I don't know if you guys read this piece um, about the Bucks guard, uh, Pat Connaughton, um, also a white player. Um, I'm not sure if I'm saying his last name, right? But yeah, that's right. Yeah. He, he had a piece, there was a piece, I think it was either, it was in the ringer, I'm pretty sure. And it was about how hard he works, you know, how he, whatever, he's always setting challenges for himself and lifting the weight. He's like, basically he's the hardest worker besides Giannis there, whatever. Fine. Um, but what he said is that even in high school, one of the first things he thought of was I have to start dunking because I know that the stereotype against white guys is that they're unathletic. And so Strangely, he had a racial a race analysis, but it all it had everything to do with him and his career. And I wonder how much that is the case for for white guys in the in the league that they have in some ways very subtle and very um, specific race consciousnesses that don't really maybe look outside themselves until like you know until you're Kyle Korver and you're thirty whatever years old and it, it it's on some level like too late you've lived your whole career. Uh, with these people that you have now admitted to never having understood. But certainly you understood that being white means something, that there's some symbolic uh, value in it. Um, how could you not? I mean, yeah. seriously, how could you not? Yeah, that piece was in The Ringer by uh, Alan Siegel. Um, but as far as white, white players and, and racial consciousness, that's a great point, the thing that comes to mind for me is Larry Bird talking about how he was always insulted when uh, the opposing coach would put a white player on him defensively. Um, and so there's there's some self-loathing. There, there's a lot going on there. Um, but well, with- Connaughton says in that story, being a six foot five white guy, you have to be able to pass the eye test. So with Corver, I think we should go a little bit deeper into what he signifies and that there are some like fairly pernicious stereotypes that he can, you know, personally embody. And I'm sure he, he understands like he's known for being particularly monomaniacal in terms of his training regimen, in terms of the amount of shots that he puts up. And he projects the image of being this guy 
who got into the NBA just because he worked harder than everyone else. Um, as a white player, especially as a great outside shooter, that I think is the stereotype that comes along with it is that I'm not as talented, quote unquote, as, you know, the other guys here, aka the, you know, all the black players in the NBA, but I just worked so hard and I like strived for it so much that I just like earned my way into the league. And I think that's, you know, what a lot of white fans see when they see a Kyle Korver or a Julian Edelman or somebody like that who's not, um, you know, big or tall. Um, it's just like, oh, if, uh, you know, this shows that if you just work hard enough, you can make it into these like elite spaces without not, you know, you know if, even if you don't have the, you know, prime athletic ability, which is obviously not true that, that, that Kyle Korver I mean, that is not theme, a great athlete. That theme actually was 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 a big part of the the telecast on Sunday of the Pistons Bucks game and Luke Kennard scored like 20 points and they spent several minutes talking about how Luke Kennard has made himself a better athlete and he's made himself bigger and he's made himself, you know, more competitive. Luke Kennard's an amazing athlete. He's in the NBA. First of all, yeah, exactly. They, none of these guys uh, they're all six, five and above talking about how they like work their way. And like, there's, you know, you, you've got as, as many, like whatever quote unquote natural gifts as anybody else. But um, there's a moment in Kyle Korver's uh, piece where he says something. Um, he talks about basically like quiet racism or like people who say all the right things in public, but when they get home, they, you know, say, Oh, I wish everything wasn't all about race. Um, and I would bet my life that, there is a private conversation that echoes this public conversation that we have about white athletes. I would bet my life, for example, that uh, the Kyle Corvers and Pat Connaughton's and Luke Kennard's of the world have been pulled aside by certain coaches and said, Hey, if you're going to make it, you know, you're going to have to, you know, th all that sort of programming that we hear over the, the, over the airwaves in the broadcast booth, I'm sure someone, you know, their parents are saying, well, it's, you know, you're doing great against these kids who have all these natural abilities, but, you know, and, you know, good for you that you work so hard. Um, and so, again, I would love to hear about that lifelong um, race consciousness that uh, that these guys have been um, sort of socialized into, because as much as they have played their whole careers with mostly black kids, and black men when they get into the NBA, they've also, their whole career has been surrounded by other people who have um, certain ideas about who is naturally an NBA player and who is not. And uh, that to me is more important or more interesting, that is, than um, his reaction to Tabo Cephalosha in some way. Um, back to the substance of this piece, um, our colleague Ben Mathis Lilly wrote about the formulation in here that was not original to, to Corver, but noting that um, when it comes to racism in America, I think that guilt and responsibility tend to be seen as more or less the same thing. But I'm beginning to understand how there's a real difference. As white people, are we guilty of the sins of our forefathers? No, I don't think so. But are we responsible for them? Yes, I believe we are. Um, I think it's totally reasonable to want <laughs> to hear something different from court, like to hear his about his journey as a as a white player, I agree that that would have made for a more interesting essay. 
But there is still something like strangely alluring and powerful in hearing this particular dude say this particular thing. Um, and I'm wondering, Vincent, like, um, it, it seems like the question of like what Kyle Korver should do now is like a fairly fundamental question around white allyship, um, around is it enough for him to say these things? Should he put how or should he put this in practice? Should he just like step back and let the black players on his teams have a, a platform? The question of like what he should do seems like way more complicated and fraught than, you know, the act of him putting this stuff down in the Players' Tribune, which for me seems like kind of an unalloyed good thing to do. Yeah. It's interesting because in the NBA, this uh, reflects mostly as, well, I guess we don't know because I guess we don't know, uh, to your point about DeMarcus Cousins, we don't know exactly how often um, sort of sideline events and all these things are happening. But at least in the public conversation, this manifests mostly as like potential energy, right? Like if something happens, I want to be there for my teammates. Like if something like what happened to Tabo Cephalosha happens again, I want to react differently. Um, and I think he did along with his teammates react in a, a way that's probably more pleasing to him uh, with the Russell Westbrook um, fiasco. In some ways, like the bigger test of this would have been if any a prominent white player in the NFL had gone along with someone like Kaepernick and like taken the knee, right? Like there was, because the NBA hasn't had that high profile of a uh, sort of clearly racial saga, it's hard to know what a white person would do just in a vacuum. I don't think we're looking to Kyle Corver to like just start a, you know, start a black studies foundation or something, right? Like um, it's about the ways he shows up for his teammates when there is a big thing, right? Right, which is why it is, as you just said, Joss, it is an unalloyed good thing. Um, it's also possible that Kyle Korver's intended audience here isn't just his teammates in the NBA, but the potential salutary benefits of Kyle Korver writing this can be the 15-year-old white kid that reads the, un the, that reads the Players' Tribune, that there is a bigger audience there. This doesn't have to be Ta-Nehisi Coates writing about reparations. It's just Kyle Korver saying, hey, I need to be more aware of who I am and who we all are well, the fact society. that LeBron, thing. The fact that LeBron is sharing this is going to give it a bigger audience Absolutely. too. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, as we await the next step in Kyle Korver's uh, journey, uh, Vincent, it's, <laughs> it's always great to have you on. Thanks. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Always great. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts.
In the last two months, Major League Baseball has handed out more than $2 billion in extensions to players already under contract. This sounds like it would be a good thing for players, $2 billion, but some of the extensions are going to players who have yet to qualify for arbitration, let alone free agency, drastically reducing their earning potential and saving the sport billions of dollars in the process. Player A in this story is 22-year-old Atlanta Braves second baseman Ozzie Albies, who signed a contract that potentially will pay him $45 million over nine years, fixing his earnings into and beyond his prime. Jeff Passan of ESPN is here. Jeff, welcome. Hello, gentlemen. How are you? Good. In addition to writing a uh, detailed analysis of the Albies contract, you wrote on Twitter that you talked to executives, agents, scouts, analytics types, and others who all say this is possibly the worst contract ever on its face I'd have to agree. Let's start with the why. Why? I I always hate being a prisoner of the moment. And I feel like in sports in 2019, we get caught in that cell very often. But the more I looked at this contract, the more it didn't make sense. And it doesn't make sense from a number of respects. It doesn't make sense from the finances. Uh, When you look at what Eloy Jimenez, for example, signed with the Chicago White Sox, he got six years and $43 million guaranteed. He has not played a day in the major leagues. When he signed that deal, Ozzie Albies was an all-star last year with a year and a half of service time and plays a more premium position than Eloy Jimenez, a corner outfielder. So that's just the start right there. The money didn't make sense. But when you look at what he gave up in the deal, It's a seven-year deal that includes a pair of club options. And Ozzie Albies at 22 years old, that means it's going to take him through his age 30 season. And that that, that is what you find in every one, like literally every contract extension that was signed this offseason. The $2 billion, worth plus, uh, $2 billion plus worth of it, every single one of them ends up with the player being at least 30 years old when it is done. And as we've seen this winter and the past winter and the winter before, teams are reticent to sign guys who are in their 30s. So what they're doing is they are scraping up all those extremely valuable years in the mid to late 20s at discounted prices. And in Albie's case, it's an embarrassingly low discount. When talking about this contract, you have to have the ability to hold two thoughts in your head at once. The first of those thoughts is that Ozzie Albies just made himself a fantastically wealthy individual by any uh, objective measure. The other thought is, and I thought this was, you, you can tell us, Jeff, if you agree with this, but Dan Simborski of Fangraphs wrote that based on projections and the projections for Ozzie Albies's future performance are incredibly high given how well he played as a very young, um, you know, full-time starter last season that he's giving up with, by signing this contract, an estimated $200 million in terms of what you would expect. Not in like, and, and as Simborski points out, it's not in some fanciful system where he would become a free agent. Based on the current economics of baseball as they are undertaken today, if he had like signed a like normal contract, he could have potentially made $200 million more than this. 
All he had to do was wait a little bit. And I remember talking with Justin Morneau about this. Justin Morneau, I think, got long-term contract offers three consecutive years from the Minnesota Twins. The first year, it was you know, something piddling like $12 million. And, and again, let, let's, let's establish what you said at the beginning there. We're talking in this very weird world where $12 million is piddling. I understand that $12 million is not piddling in, in any way, shape, or form. But you know, when, when we're talking about a $10 billion industry, uh, it, it's you know, change in the couch cushions. Uh, Justin Morneau, the second year, turned it down. It was for like 25 or $30 million. Then he went out and won an MVP and signed a six-year $88 million deal. Uh, waiting in baseball is quite often, especially when you're young, the very best thing that you can do financially. And, and I want to make a really important point, I think, and, and it dovetails with what you said. The two things that you pointed out are not mutually exclusive. Like you can become fantastically wealthy and still have made what is an objectively poor decision. And and look, Ozzy Albies clearly said money was not the most important thing for me in this. But what I think players need to recognize, and, and this is what I wrote in my column the day after, Major League Baseball teams, uh, their sole objective in this is deriving value. It's finding how they can extract the most out of every player, whether that means getting him under contract until he's 30, whether that means uh, using his arm up before his elbow blows out, whatever it's Whatever it takes, that's what they're going to do. And and the game is a bit rigged in a sense because players are not fighting for that. Players are fighting for their happiness. And some players' happiness involves staying in the same place for a long time and signing for what seems like a, a ton of money, but compared to what you can actually get, it isn't. And, and the players have no duty to look out for their fellow players. And that's part of why the Major League Baseball Players Association, I think, right now uh, is is in one of its weaker moments, if not its weakest moment in its history. I disagree with you. I think the players do have a duty to look out for one another. And any good agent is going should be conveying that to his client. There was no reason to lock for Ozzy Albies to lock himself up for potentially nine years, taking him you know, into his thirties, well, beyond but, his but, age but, 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 season. No, but, but let's, uh, why, if, if someone is not going to look out for me, and I think these extensions have established that players are in this for themselves, then why should I look out for someone else? Well, I, I'll tell you why. Well, you're not looking out for yourself either because you are depressing the entire market. And yes, yeah. for someone like Ozzy Albies, who was signed at age 16 from Curacao, got a $350,000 bonus, was in yep. the minors for what, four seasons, Jeff, where he didn't make hardly any money and now has established himself as a major leaguer. And yes, he can look at this and say, I'm going to make myself permanently wealthy and my heirs will be wealthy also because if I, you know, because this contract will guarantee that, but you are working in a union. You are part of a collective. You do have an obligation to think about the overall state of the game. 
And it's malpractice for an agent not to say yeah. to someone like Ozzy Albies, look, we don't even know what the collective bargaining agreement is going to look like right. in not nine years when this contract is done, in three years. Well, let's talk it, about, um, Jeff, the particularities of Albies' representation, because the thing that I found so confusing about the coverage here is that whenever um, there's a Scott Boris deal, every story is about how it's a Scott <laughs> Boris deal. Scott Boris, Scott <laughs> Boris, Scott Boris. But in all of the coverage, except in your piece, I didn't see anyone name um, Ozzy Albies' agent. His na- the agent's name is David Meter, and maybe you can explain to us who Meter is and why um, he might be motivated to get Albies to sign a deal like this. David Meter is a very polarizing figure in baseball. And, and a lot of it has to do with what has happened over the last like four months or so. He also is Craig Kimbrell's agent. And, and he is a, you know, the, there are different strata of Craig agents. Kimbrell who and, remains unsigned. It, correct. Craig Kimbrell, uh, whom David Meter asked for a six year deal when no relief pitcher has ever gotten more than five years, who asked for uh, $18 million in average annual value when. Uh, that the maximum has been 17 million. I mean, we can go on and on about the uh, misread of the market that went on there. But the the different strata of agents. So you have your your Boris. You have uh, Casey Close and Excel. You have Joel Wolf uh, and and Wasserman Media. I mean, you have Dan Lozano and MVP. There's there's about six really really big agencies. CAA in there as well. Um, and they, they kind of run things. Then you have like your, your middle tier, you're, you're not going to call them boutique shops necessarily because they're bigger than that, but, uh, they, they, they scoop up the rest of the really big clients. And then you have some smaller time guys who happen to have some big names and David meter absolutely qualifies there. He's got Kimbrell, he's got Francisco Lindor and he had Ozzy Albies as well. And and I do not know what David Meter's business looks like. I do know that other smaller time agents who do not have a large number of major league clients have been compelled in the past to sign long term contracts that may not be exactly what their players should be looking for out of fear that their those clients are going to be poached by larger agencies and that they're going to lose the five percent fee and five percent. On $35 million, still a pretty good chunk of money. We're talking $1.75 million over the next nine years, $200,000 a year. It's a pretty good way to sustain your business or at least keep yourself open if you are a one-man shop. Now, I'm not saying that is what David Meter did by any means. I don't know what the motivations were for him. But the you know when you look at the scenario, you try to say what could possibly compel an agent to tell a player – that it is okay to sign this. And there is just nothing in this case that answers that question in the affirmative. And, and uh, let's, you know, let's step back here for a second uh, and, and also recognize that uh, Ozzie Albies did not have to do this. And, and that's where, you know, when you talk about the strength of the union seven, that, that to me is where there is a failure right now. The union knew about this. The union advised against this. He still did it. But the process that's in place to me is where the failure is. I don't know if Ozzy Albies talked with 
any players who had signed a, a good long-term deal or a bad long-term deal. I don't know if he talked with veterans. I don't know if he talked with younger guys. There has to be a process in place where if you're going to sign a deal like this, you talk with more people than your agent in order to have that safety net there to convince you that if you're making a mistake, that your mistake is going to resonate through the rest of your brethren and the rest of the sport. And I think that is the under-discussed issue here as well, because well, I can I there, tell you there what are the broader most, there are broader issues here, Jeff. Right? I mean, the can more I tell players. You what go the ahead. Most under-discussed issue is the most under-discussed issue is that there has not been a Latin American or Caribbean player of consequence aside from Kenley Jansen in the last at least 12 years who has not at one point or another signed a long-term contract before he hit free agency yeah. whether it was buying out arbitration years or eventually buying out free agent years Kenley Jansen is literally the only one to go and hit free agency unadulterated and he was a guy who didn't debut until late because he was a, a late switch to a position player or to a to a pitcher from position player that's fascinating that that, that to me is is the most underreported element of of this story yeah. and and it's sad it's really sad because that is the consequence of of this system in which latin american players still are habitually underpaid compared to their american counterparts coming out of the amateur system and yet the players association allows that to continue to happen and the players association obviously in this case didn't attempt to stop it and i mean maybe they're powerless like you say you can only advise yeah, they, no, so they, far they, att they, att they attempted it they yeah. attempted like they i mean they they absolutely attempted but at at some point what can the players association do the you know I, i've had this argument with with people uh who are and listen i consider myself a very pro-labor person uh there are plenty of people out there who are far more pro-labor than i am apparently and and i say that the job of the Major League Baseball Players Association is not to get the most money for the player. Uh, the job is to give them uh, a, a situation in which they can make a decision freely. That, that is what they preach, that we're not here for the most money. We're here for, for free will, essentially, for players. And at some point when your MO is free will, there's nothing that you as the institution can do to take that away from the player himself. If he's going to choose what he's going to choose, can you say no? Can you scuttle it? No, of course not. The upshot of all of this is while Mookie Betts will get paid, the 29 players that signed extensions this offseason won't because they're going to hit free agency if they ever do in their 30s. And yep. ultimately, it means that as Major League Baseball revenues continue to climb, which for the foreseeable future, they appear to be uh, poised to do that. The teams are just going to make more money. There's no guarantee they're going to pour that back into 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 payroll. I mean, that's the that's the fear with Atlanta, right? Like Liberty Media has never revealed itself to be, uh, you know, to be the the ownership that's going to go spend heavily on its baseball team. And now that it has two foundational pieces in place at well under market rates, are you telling me they're going to take that excess money and go and reinvest it? No. Like, well, if you've shown no indication or inclination to do that, what makes me think that you're going to now? Like, you, 
Atlanta's good, and they've got an incredible amount of young pitching that's going to be cheap as well. You're telling me they're going to go out and supplement that uh, with, with a couple more $100 million-plus-dollar players, the, the types that really would round out a roster? No, it's not going to happen. And, and that's the sad part of all this. Jeff Passan writes about baseball for ESPN. We hear that he also does a, a very good Elmo impersonation. Jeff slash Elmo, what do you think of Ozzy Albee's contract? It's pretty freaking terrible. <laughs> that was worth it. Thank you, Jeff. Take it easy, boys. Now it is time for After Balls. We talked about the 12th hole uh, at the Masters uh, at Augusta National in some detail, but we did not mention the name of the 12th hole. All of the holes at the Masters have names, Stefan. You might be familiar with T. Olive, number one. Pink dogwood, flowering peach, flowering crabapple, magnolia, juniper, pampas, yellow jasmine, Carolina cherry, camellia, white dogwood, and number 12, golden bell. Of course. It's perfect. Number 13 gets azalea, Chinese fir, firethorn, redbud, nandina is number 17. 13 is special. And holly is number 18. But let's focus on... None of the holes get like blue dye in the lakes. Or, no. or fake bird calls. Nothing like that. No. Uh, let's stick with golden bells, uh, number 12. Stefan, what is your golden bell? Forrest Gregg, the NFL Hall of Famer who played for Vince Lombardi's champion Green Bay Packers in the 1960s, died on Friday at age 85. The New York Times obituary includes a famous photograph of Gregg by Robert Riger. Mudhead is its title. It shows Gregg from the chest up. He's standing on the sidelines covered entirely in mud. The number of his jersey is obscured, his tiny helmet close-cropped face mask and yelping face are all smeared with mud. Lombardi mentioned the photo in his 1963 book, Run to Daylight. Forrest Gregg looks like he is cast out of iron. It's one of dozens of iconic images that Riger shot in the 1950s and 60s that basically shaped the image of the NFL for the public. Riger shot Mudhead in San Francisco's Kizar Stadium on December 10, 1960. It had rained several days leading up to the game. Stadium workers tried to dry out the field with sand, and all it did was make it muddier. Greg would recall. They obviously should have tried burning the field, Josh. That might have worked better. Uh, Greg claimed the mud was five inches deep, which, judging from two minutes of silent newsreel of the game, Paul Horning leads the Packers through mud and rain over the 49ers, in which the teams are indistinguishable, seems pretty accurate. In a 2016 post on the website Pro Football Journal, Chris Willis of NFL Films added some of the backstory. Late in the game, with the Packers up 13-0, Riger focused on the mud-caked players on the bench. When 49ers quarterback Y.A. Tittle threw an interception, Greg leaped to celebrate. Willis writes that Riger sat next to Lombardi on the team bus and talked for 40 minutes minutes about the game. You know, I think all that new formation business with the spread is a lot of junk, Lombardi said. You play this game with your power. Riger had no idea what he had captured on film. The image was Look Magazine's sports photo of the year. It was used on the cover of the Packers' 1961 yearbook and on the cover of Greg's 2009 autobiography. It was taken too late, however, for a book that Riger had published a few months earlier in 1960 titled The Pros, a documentary of professional football in America. That included other NFL photos that would become famous, including the cover shot of Johnny Unitas throwing a pass in the 1958 
NFL championship game, and also pencil and watercolor drawings that started Riger's career, many of which appeared on the cover of Sports Illustrated in the 1950s. Newly hired NFL commissioner Pete Rozelle blurbed Riger's book, saying that the NFL and its fans are indebted to this new fine book for so vividly portraying the league's colorful embryonic development and its status today as entertainer of millions of sports enthusiasts annually. SI promoted the book more accurately with a cover shot and headline for a photo spread in the October 24th issue titled The Violent Face of Pro Football. As Michael Oriard points out in his book King Football, the NFL's ascension in the late 50s was coincident with the marketing of the game's brutality. Time Magazine did a cover in 1959 called A Man's Game that celebrated the awesome violence of pro football in contrast to college football. The title of a Saturday evening post profile of quarterback Bobby Lane was This Is No Game for Kids. Look Magazine cited the savage contact as key to the NFL's growth. Life magazine wrote that then-Giants coach Tom Landry revolutionized defense play into a cagey, crackling, tigerish spectacle that makes fans stamp their feet, yell their heads off, tear down goalposts, and start riots. And Roger Kahn wrote a poem in Esquire accompanying a painting of a football pileup. I will read it now. The men at work were beef trusts. Knots bulged behind their necks. Their thighs seemed like the thighs of elephants. Within the grotesque press of pads and helmets, they surged and butted one another as mercenaries trained to an ordered rage. And from their grossness this cool winter day, the beef trusts spun almost a dance. Roger Kahn, Boys of Summer beef trusts. Oriard notes that the violent NFL was seen as an antidote to a growing problem in post-war culture, one that I mentioned in my afterball last week as a growing problem in our current culture. In 1960, a few weeks after he was elected president, John F. Kennedy summed it up in a piece in Sports Illustrated, the age of leisure and abundance, Kennedy wrote, was physically weakening the country. The headline on the piece, America soft then, soft now. Josh, what's your golden bell? Before I grace the American populace and the international listeners out there with my golden bell, I wanted to put in a little plug for the Slate podcast Endorsomatic. If you like our afterballs, if you want to track them down and see what we've talked about in the past, you can go to slate.com slash endorsements, and they're all collected there in addition to uh, the cocktail chatter and endorsements and other things. Uh, on other Slate podcasts. So check it out, slate.com slash endorsements. And now for my golden bell. All right, Stefan, as promised at the top of the show, I am going to uh, very sweatily attempt to connect my book, The Queen, about the original uh, welfare queen, Linda Taylor, with the larger concept of sports. It's a challenge because this is not a sports book, but a man has to do what a man has to do. And to sell books. The connection to sports in this book is a tenuous one, but uh, it does exist in that um, when Taylor was convicted of welfare fraud in 1977, there was a sentencing hearing, as there is in these uh, sorts of criminal trials, and her defense attorney, Skip Gant, made an argument to the judge for leniency. And in arguing for leniency on behalf of his client, he said that her case had gotten 
a huge amount of notoriety and that the reason that um, there was all this public pressure to get a big sentence for her was because she was this notorious figure. It didn't have anything to do with actually what she had been convicted of. And Gantt analogized her case with a couple of celebrity cases where um, the person in question did not get a big sentence. He mentioned Patty Hearst, who got probation. He mentioned Richard Nixon, who did not even get probation. And he mentioned Claudine Langey, who got uh, 30 days for criminally negligent homicide. Are you familiar with the Claudine Langey case? I've heard of it, but I'm not familiar with it. So Claudine Langey was a, um, as you might guess from the name, she's a French-American singer. She was an actress. She was a very well-known individual uh, in her time. She was married to Andy Williams, the singer. Um, And then after they got divorced, she got in a relationship with Dun dun dun! Sports. A skier named Spider Sabich, who was a well-known kind of playboy, Vail, uh, Colorado skier. He was on the U.S. ski team. He was in the Olympics. He was the pro ski racing champion champion in '71 and 1972. And in 1976, he was killed by Claudine Langer. And her defense was that the gun that she shot was discharged accidentally. A jury uh, agreed with her, and she got just the 30 days for criminally negligent homicide. There's been, as you can imagine, given the like kind of infamy and, and notoriety and the fact that they're celebrities, there's been this whole kind of cottage industry around, um, you know, true crime documentaries about this case. And did, you know, was it really an accident or was it really not an accident? But the thing that was kind of most well-known at the time, although it's kind of been disappeared from the internet, the one of the reasons this case got a lot of notoriety is that the same week that this happened, before any of it had been adjudicated, it was featured on Saturday Night Live in a sketch. This was the first season of Saturday Night Live, one of the first episodes in which Chevy Chase and Jane Curtin played the announcers on in a skiing event called the Claudine Langer Ski Invitational. Let's listen to a clip. I would say at this halfway point that he's certainly going to take third or maybe even a second place. This, uh-oh, uh-oh, it looks to me like he has been accidentally shot by Claudine Langer. Just grazed, I think, Tom. Well, oh no, that one got him. He's down. No, he's down this time. Uh, no, 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 he's getting up. Always the mark of a fine athlete is the ability to recover in difficult situations. I can't believe he's going for the finish line. And, oh, no, I'm again, again, he has been accidentally shot by Claudine Langer. And this time I think he's down to stay, Jessica. So you can, you can understand, Stefan, why this sketch would cause something of a stir. Like this became, uh, you know, I, I found interview like with Lorraine Newman, who was another SNL cast member, a few years later. And in the early years of Saturday Night Live, this was the sketch that people would cite and saying, like, does Saturday Night Live go too far? Is it too mean? Um, And in this case, they actually apologized on the air. I don't think an apology was ever read, but there was a card that appeared on the screen that said, on April 24th, 1976, Saturday night included a sketch about a Claudine Langer Invitational Ski Championship in Vail, Colorado, as part of the program's topical humor. It is desirable to correct any misunderstanding that a suggestion was made that, in fact, a crime had been committed 
The satire was fictitious and its intent only humorous. This is a statement of apology if the material was misinterpreted. <laughs> it's a classic apology on, on many levels. Obviously, this is the kind of thing that you write if there's a threat of legal action. Also, uh, just knowing that if the material was misinterpreted, that's not just the thing that we invented, uh, you know, in the last few years. That's the thing that people said in the 70s in their fake apologies. Yeah, but it also the apology has the the whiff of we're not really apologizing. It did. Um, Lauren Michaels would later say about it, uh, the Claudine Lager piece, I thought it was very funny. I also thought it was very offensive. So funny things are offensive. Offensive things are funny. Claudine Lager mentioned in a single sentence <laughs> in the upcoming hit book, The Queen by Josh Levine. Pre-order it today. You should. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you want yet more hangup and if you are still here, then you probably do. In our bonus segment this week, Stefan and I will talk to Patrick Fort about a hockey refereeing controversy of enormous proportions. The problem is that it's so subjective and it only, this rule basically only appears in moments where it matters, whether it's like, it's always a scoring play. This comes into play. So it's always going to be controversial no matter what. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangout plus. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty and thanks for listening. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.